I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Our text today is verse 18 through 34. In a message entitled, What Must I Do to Inherit Eternal Life? If you'll make your way there, we'll read the passage in just a moment. In Luke's gospel, there is an emphasis on the importance of faith and the need to avoid unbelief. Every individual who encounters the truth about Jesus is confronted with a decision about who he is and how to respond to him. It creates a crisis of faith in a sense. And followers of Jesus are called to a kingdom that is marked out by grace, repentance, provision, salvation, prayer, a relationship of communion with God. All who enter into the kingdom of God will enter only by one way. That's through Jesus Christ. As we humble ourselves before him and we come in childlike faith and we uh, on purpose uh, surrender all of our security and any earthly material resources and we say, Jesus, we are trusting in you and you alone. Jesus encountered a a man near Jericho who was identified as a ruler. The Gospels also tell us that he was a very rich man. This man wanted to know what he could do to inherit eternal life. Jesus gave him the answer, but he didn't like the answer. In fact, when he got the answer of what was necessary in his life, the man turned away sorrowful and unsaved. Jesus used that occasion to make this point absolutely clear. Genuine faith is an exercise of complete reliance on God. It's not a mix of anything else. It's not uh, we do our part and God does his part. It's complete reliance on God for all of time and eternity. Let's begin reading here in Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. It says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man replied in verse 21, I've kept all these from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. And you have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Now verse 24 Seeing that, he became sad. Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, We've left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, 
parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. Verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and he told them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The focus of the encounter is the man who came to Jesus, who's identified as a ruler. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that uh, he was rich. Matthew adds that he was young. We're not told specifically what kind of ruler he was, but he had some type of authority. He was in some type of position over other people. And Mark indicated that he fell on his knees when he came before Jesus. And then when Jesus saw him, he looked at him and he loved him. In verse 18, the man asked a question that has eternal implications. In fact, it might be the most important question that a person could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking basically, what does it take to live in God's presence forever? What does it take to have my eternity settled? And evidently he realized, at least at a minimum, that Jesus had authority related to eternal life. This is not the first time the question has been asked in Luke. You might remember back in chapter 11 that a teacher of the law stood up to test Jesus and asked the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But I think there's a little bit of a difference between these two encounters. And I think the difference is the first man had no intention to seek the truth. And while the second man ultimately doesn't receive the truth, he really wanted to know the answer. He wanted to know what he needed. And the assumption was that maybe his generosity or a good deed or something that he could do was the answer to his question. He wanted to do something. He's not unlike a lot of people in our day who think that they can do something to make themselves right with God. And Jesus is about to lay this out in a plain manner, not only for the ruler, but for others who are listening on as well. And first of all, we learn here that God alone is good. Only God is good in the sense that it's described here. In verses 18 and 19, the ruler refers to Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus asked the question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus draws attention to the second half of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. Now, at first glance, it appears that Jesus gave the ruler a pass when he replied, uh, and the man said back to him, 
I've kept all of these from my youth. He's thinking he's in pretty good shape because Jesus has laid out these things. When he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, these are the things that are necessary. And the man says, I've kept all these from my youth. I think this is the equivalent answer or statement of saying, I am a good person. How many times have you encountered someone who did not know Jesus, who was not saved, who was not a Christian, and you begin to talk to them about just the basics of the faith and how God has changed your life and what it means to be saved and how they can be forgiven, and they answer with some answer similar to this, I'm a good person, I've never done this or that or the other, and they think somehow that makes them right with God. But the reality is, if the ruler had looked within himself, he would have realized he did not measure up. He did not fulfill perfectly what God had commanded. And Jesus was using this by way of illustration. And he goes further to the heart of the matter. And here's what he said to the man. You lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. The man was sad because he was very rich. Jesus is laying the groundwork here to show this man his inadequacy, even though he was standing before him in his self-righteousness. And in in reality, he does the same for us as well. You remember the Apostle Paul speaking about what happened to him after he encountered the law. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7 and following, he said, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, Do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. But then here's what he says. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again. Here's what Paul was saying. My entire life was filled with coveting. I I was uh, under the curse of death. I was under the sentence that I deserved. And the problem for the ruler that came to Jesus was that his possessions were more important to him than his love for God. His possessions were more of a priority for him than his surrender to God. And in fact, he was not a keeper of the law as he thought he was. Now, what about this thought here? God alone is good. Well, that's a scripture that uh, reverberates throughout the rest of the Bible In 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 34, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 25 and verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 100 and verse 5 says, For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. And when we say that God is good, what we're saying is that the truth that God is good speaks to his character. So in other words, when we say God is good, we're not talking first about what God does. We are first saying this is who God is. This is his being. He exists as the one who is perfectly righteous. 
and the one who is absolutely good. And then the truth that God is good also has to do with his actions. Because he is good, he always does what is good. He is always perfect in what he does. And the truth that God is good and the fact that the ruler calls Jesus good here speaks to the deity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. In fact, there are some cults and other uh, false teachings that have actually pointed to the Scripture and they've said well, what Jesus was saying, that he was not really God, that that's not what he was saying. That In fact, he's saying the opposite, that he was not God, that only God alone is good, so therefore he's not God. That is absolutely speaking a falsehood about what Jesus is indicating here. He's drawing this man in to make the point that he is God. God is one in essence and he's three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal and co-eternal. And Jesus wanted the man to realize the full implication of calling him good. That he is in fact God and is truly good. So don't miss this thought. God is alone the one who is good and therefore he's the standard. So you're not comparing yourself to other people. You're not comparing your works. You're not coming offering anything to God of righteousness because you have nothing to offer to God you're recognizing that you don't measure up to the standard. Only he is the one who can bring us into his presence. And that brings me to the next point here. Not only is God alone good, but God alone can save. Jesus saw that the ruler was sad. So he says to his disciples, as the man was departing, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives this absurd illustration in verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The Messianic Jewish scholar and professor Albert Edersheim wrote in the 19th century, what he lacked was earth's poverty and heaven's riches. A heart fully set on following Christ And this could only come to him through willing surrender of it all. Now we know that the Bible warns of trusting in riches. There's nothing inherently wrong with material goods. They are morally neutral in and of themselves. But the issue is the value that we place on them, the priority that we set on them, how we spend our time and our energy and our efforts and our devotion in gaining them. And the Bible warns about that. In Proverbs 11 and verse 4, it says, Wealth is not profitable on the day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. Proverbs 23 and verse 4 and 5 says, Don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better. Stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears. For It makes wings for itself and flies like an eagle to the sky. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now you might have heard the statement somewhere along the way that it's 
at times harder, more difficult to reach those who are up and out than it is to reach those who are down and out. Now, basically what that means is oftentimes people who have sufficient material resources or maybe even abundant material resources have a tendency, if they're unsaved, to depend on those things. So when they're confronted with the truth claims about Jesus, when they're confronted with the gospel, they're thinking, first of all, as that ruler was, I'm a good person. And secondly, I've got what I need. Everything's good in my life. How could anything possibly be better for me? And that self-sufficiency is what gets people in trouble. And the flip side of that is sometimes when you have nothing of earthly substance, it's easier to understand how much you need to rely on God. I think Jesus was using a figure of speech here that I would uh, identify as hyperbole. And I've heard attempts through the years to explain this extreme statement away and to describe a reference to a small gate in the city that it was difficult for the camel to squeeze through and all that. I I think there's a little bit of humor here. I think Jesus is saying, this is how hard it would be for a camel, you know the size of a camel, to fit through the eye of a needle. I don't think he's using anything other than just saying, it's impossible with man. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible? For someone who trusts in their own riches rather than in God to be saved. You remember Jesus' words of uh, judgment uh, to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? He said, for you say, I'm rich and I become wealthy and I need nothing and don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He said in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. That's a message to us in the church as well. That even if we're saved, at times we can depend on things that are material rather than the things that are spiritual. And if our dependence is on the things that are material rather than the things that are spiritual, then we're going to get material results rather than spiritual results. And that says to us that even if we as a body of believers have great resources, much at our disposal, the ability to do a lot of things from a human standpoint, If it's only those things that we're relying on, we will not see a spiritual movement of God because we're depending on those things rather than on God. And the issue is, where are our priorities? Where is our worship focused? In whom are we actually depending? And is our faith growing or are we stagnant because we think we have everything we need? Ultimately, the issue is not riches or poverty. Ultimately, the issue is faith. It's dependence on God to do what only God can do. Now, let me say here by word of warning and instruction that this cuts to the heart, to the core of what we would know as the prosperity gospel movement in our day. This speaks directly to the health and the wealth 
gospel. The basic premise of that being that God rewards with health and wealth according to the measure of our faith. And I want you to know that the health and wealth gospel that's being propagated in this country in much of the strong uh, charismatic movement that's out of control is another gospel. It is not the biblical gospel. And if you read Galatians chapter 1, there is a clear warning there that if anyone were to come to you, if even an angel from heaven were to come to you and proclaim a different gospel, let him be accursed. And that says to us that we've got to be careful about the things that we take into our minds and we take into our hearts. And we need to be sure that they're anchored in the Word of God and in the Scripture. And around the world, that same teaching has taken root in places where people are most desperate. And they're being taught that if they only have faith, then they'll have all the things that people in the West have. They'll be wealthy and well and healthy. It's it's ravaged Africa in many ways in the religious teaching there. Now, when they heard what Jesus said about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God, they asked in verse 26, then who can be saved? That's a good question. I mean, I mean, right here in front of them, Jesus is teaching uh, the need for surrender to him, to a full measure of dependence on him. And they're like, who can be saved? Because they're basically thinking if, if none of this is going to work, then what, what do we have? We got nothing. And the reality is none of us can be saved in our own strength, our own power, our own efforts. When we come to God, we come to him and we say, God, we've got nothing. We have no righteousness of our own. We have no good works of our own. We have no good standing of our own. We are here empty-handed, and we are dependent on you. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is a beautiful truth in the sense that God's grace is sufficient to save a poor man, and God's grace is sufficient to save a rich man. We find examples in Scripture of people like Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea and Barnabas and Lydia and Cornelius the centurion and the Ethiopian treasurer. These are people who were people of means from an earthly standpoint. So Jesus is not saying that it's impossible for these people to be saved. He's saying it's impossible for these people to be saved in their own strength. But what's impossible for man is possible with God. The power of God is sufficient to overcome any barrier to salvation. It does not matter what that barrier is. And your salvation is impossible in your own efforts, but it is possible with God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. When he says you can be saved, that means that you can be delivered, you can be rescued, you can be redeemed. And most religions throughout history have taught that salvation is by good works or by atoning for your own sins in in some way, by measuring up to some standard that uh, people have arbitrarily set. And what God is saying is that's not the way to be saved at all. You are saved by grace, 
Grace is unmerited favor. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. So today as we came to this time of communion and we celebrated the bread and the cup, what we are celebrating is that God, the one who is good, sent his only son into this world to live among men. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. He was willing to die in our place. He provided the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. In fact, Jesus reiterates this teaching of what is to come here, even in this passage, to his disciples. But he's telling us that salvation is by grace through faith. And faith is the means that God uses to gift his grace to us. But we can say that even faith is a gift from God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Psalm 3 and verse 8 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's God alone who can save by convicting us of our sins and, and bringing us to Jesus through faith. I like the way A.W. Tozer put it. He said, salvation from our side is a choice. From the divine side, it is a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest by the most high God. Tozer says, our accepting and willing are reactions rather than actions. And the right of determination always remains with God. God alone can save. And then that brings me to the third and final point. God alone will reward. Notice again in verse 28, Peter speaks up. He, he kind of tends to be the spokesman from time to time. And he speaks up and he says, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So what he's saying is, I heard what you say, said to him. Lord, we did that. We, we left it all behind. We laid it all down. Our faith is in you. We, we are dependent on you. So what does that mean for us? And their surrender to Jesus by leaving what they had to follow him was exactly what the rich young ruler was unwilling to do. They left it all to follow the Lord. And Jesus says something remarkable in reply. Notice again in verse 29. He says, I tell you, there's no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. Now, I think this many times phrase here is not intended to be in primarily a material or temporal sense, as I think that would contradict the context and the spirit of the passage. I think it is meant to be literal, but I think it's spiritual and eternal in its fulfillment. Note here, Jesus speaks of those who surrender all they have. Why did they surrender all they had? Because of the kingdom of God. So there's a qualifier here. He's not just saying, because you surrender what you had so that maybe you would just gain eternal life. This, this is not ultimately just a, a selfish pursuit here. This is not just about you ultimately. He's saying these people surrendered all that they had because of the kingdom of God or for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is similar to the teaching in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. 
What value do you place on the kingdom of God as a priority in your life? What are you willing to give, surrender, lay down, give up for the sake of the kingdom? See, ultimately what we do for the kingdom is directly related to how we see the king of the kingdom. The response of faith in your life and mine is directly related to our relationship with the king. I remember the story from years ago, the life of C.T. Studd. May or may not be familiar to you, but he was a famous Englishman who was known, first of all, for his ability to play the sport of cricket. He came to know Christ along with his brothers who were also quite talented in athletics. And he said he committed his life to the whole unevangelized world and ultimately as a missionary to China, Africa, and India because he knew there was something that was more lasting. Listen to what C.T. Studd said about his missionary service in relation to what he left behind. This is the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century. He said, I knew that cricket would not last, honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was only worthwhile living for the world to come. How many of us think like that? How many of us frame our priorities and our direction and our our life trajectory in that kind of a way? How many of us truly place that type of value on something that is eternal versus something that is temporal? You might be more familiar with the little poem that was written by C.T. Studd, but people often don't know that he's the one that wrote it, Only One Life, which states in the refrain, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jesus says here to his disciples that we're going to have the blessing of what we need in this life. He says that little phrase, at this time, that's when the reward is coming in part. God's provision and his care for you because you're his child. And in Jesus, we'll have the blessing of what we need in the life to come. He says specifically, eternal life in the age to come. So I come to the close of the message today with with this thought. The question that is posed here is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's the answer. Come and follow Jesus. It's his invitation. Jesus reminds his disciples here of his coming suffering and death and resurrection that would secure our salvation. And there's only one way that we can be saved, and his name is Jesus. There's nothing that we can bring that can add to our salvation. There's nothing that we can bring that can measure up to the righteousness of God. It is only through Jesus. And today, maybe you're holding on to the things that the world has to offer. You're clutching them tightly. You're building your life around them. Friend, those things are going to pass. You came into this world, watch this, with nothing, and you're going to exit this world in a material sense with nothing. 
But Jesus says there's a better way. You can seek first the kingdom. You can follow him by faith and you can have everything more than you could possibly ever imagine. I believe if we could see the reality of what heaven is going to be in the presence of a great and a glorious God, there'd be no question about holding on to the material things of this world. There'd be no question about wrong priorities. There'd be no question about holding on to stuff that doesn't matter. When we see Jesus face to face, we're going to realize that all that stuff that we thought was important, it amounted to nothing, absolutely nothing. But Jesus amounted to everything, and he's worthy. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where you are today spiritually. God does. Maybe you have repented. You've laid it all on the line. You've surrendered your life to the Lord. And if you have, I say to you, be encouraged. God will honor your faith. God will work in your life to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But maybe you're also uh, like the rich young ruler, unwilling to lay down the things of this world. He went away sad. Friend, you don't have to go away sad today. You can go away rejoicing if you only come to Jesus by faith. Repent of your sins and trust in him as your Savior and your Lord. He'll save your soul and he'll use every resource that you have or ever will have for his glory and for the upbuilding of his kingdom. God, I'm so thankful today that we don't have to do anything to be saved because it would be impossible for us to measure up. But you've done it all for us in Jesus and you call us to repent and believe. May our faith grow, our understanding deepen, and our faithfulness be evident. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.